Hello and welcome to Elevating Founders, a podcast for early stage founders to hear the stories behind the change makers and disruptors in the tech sector who are responsible for tackling the world's biggest challenges. Brought to you by London Tech Week and Founders Forum. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. This episode, I'm delighted to have on our podcast, Tom Eisenman, Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School and author of The Fail Safe Startup, Your Roadmap for Entrepreneurial Success. Interviewing him today is a friend and fellow from the Elevating Founders Network and cohort, Sina Sazare. And it's great to hear this conversation between a millennial entrepreneur and a seasoned expert, both academically and professionally. Tom and Sina discuss how important innovation is to drive economic growth post-pandemic, why the hypergrowth that VCs push for isn't always sustainable, and Tom dispels the myth that listening to your gut is always the right thing to do. Tom also breaks down some key takeaways from the book, including why startups fail, what actually defines failure, and when you should know to break away from the herd. It's a real privilege to have Tom on the show, and it's a must-listen for budding entrepreneurs of any age looking to begin that founder journey. If you like what Tom has to say, check out his book wherever you like to get your books. Of course, it's on Amazon, but we would encourage you to get it from a local bookshop if you can. Enjoy the episode, everyone. Hey, Tom, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Uh, great to be here. Tom, it's an absolute pleasure for me to invite you onto the Elevating Founders podcast. There's so much I'd love love to cover, but I think before we get into that, it'd be good for, well, firstly, me to introduce myself because this is my first time actually on the podcast, on the Elevating Founders podcast. So yeah, my, my name's Sina Sadzadeh. Among other things, um, I'm the host of a top 30 rated entrepreneurship podcast in the UK called The Millennial Entrepreneur. Uh, focusing on the honest and open journeys of the most inspirational young entrepreneurs around the world, uh, featuring the likes of Forbes 30 Under 30 winners, Dragon's Den entrepreneurs, and TEDx speakers, to name a few. And I'm massively, pa- massively passionate about inspiring the next generation of entrepreneurs and from, from being invited as a speaker for places like uh, La Wagon, BBC Asian Network, and several leading universities across the UK. And so if you're listening to this podcast and you're here for inspiration, incredible value, this is definitely the podcast guest for you with, with Tom right now. And so, Tom, I'll save you the, I'll save you the, the blush of, of having to introduce yourself. I'll introduce you for you. Uh, Tom Eisenman is the Howard H. Stevenson Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School and the faculty co-chair of the Arthur Rock Center for Entrepreneurship. And since joining the HBS faculty in 1997, he's launched 11 MBA courses on a range of topics related to entrepreneurship, including the Entrepreneurial Manager, an introductory course taught to all 900 first-year MBAs, and Entrepreneurial Failure, an MBA elective. Tom has written over 100 Harvard Business School case studies, and his writing appears regularly in the Wall Street Journal, the New Statesman, and the New York Times. Tom, once again, it's a massive pleasure to have you on. Massive pleasure to be hosting this podcast with you today. Thank you, Sina. And and I hope some of my students make it on your other podcast. They're under 30. <laughs> I hope so, too. I hope so, too. We've had a lot of cool conversations there. Like, we've been going for a year now. So I hope, yeah, it's, it's delivered a lot of value for different people. I try to really concentrate on honest journeys because I feel like the, the whole word entrepreneurship is very much diluted amongst the next generation. It's... I feel like it's got, it's got a different message, a different tone than it used to be. And of course, like we can talk about that in um, later on in the episode. But I think 
it'll be good to kind of find out a bit more about like what you've been up to during lockdown. I know we talked about a bit about that before we hit record, but just so, yeah, because it's good to find out. Well, um, pandemic turns out to have a silver lining if you're a book author. Um, uh, you, you, I pretty much had nothing to do but sit down here in this office and, and write the book. So um, uh, that, uh, uh, you know, with all with all the misery, there was a little bit of joy of getting that work done. Yeah, I mean, I've got the book here, The Failsafe Startup. Very good. Um, obviously, we'll talk about a bit, a bit more about that in, in the next like few minutes or so. But I think like because I'm a host of an, a young entrepreneurship podcast, it'd be really good for me to know where did this whole spark of entrepreneurship originate from? So, you know, your whole interest in entrepreneurship, was there a defining moment that actually ignited this whole passion in, in the area for you? Yeah, it was um, really just the opposite of a defining moment. Um, it was slow motion. Um, I, um, after I went to graduate school, to, I got my MBA. I worked for many years at McKinsey and Company, um, including a year in London. And um, I was co-head of the media and entertainment practice. And this is um, early 90s. And, and at that point, um, media, entertainment, telecom, um, it, it were all converging into what eventually became the internet. So I worked with a lot of big companies trying to figure out how to take advantage of that. And um, <clears throat> actually, um, cable television system operators um, in the US were, were a big focus of mine when I went off and get, got my doctorate. I studied them. And little did I know I was studying entrepreneurs. They'd, they'd all built these incredible companies yeah. um, with massive amounts of, of risk taking and massive amounts of capital. Um, so it was slowly realized that I was no longer studying the gigantic corporations that I served when I was a McKinsey consultant, but 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 rather um, mm. actually studying entrepreneurs. It, it, it took a full five years for me to uh, to recognize it. Um, but then I, w- once I started, I fell in love. That's, that's a really cool journey. And I think it might be quite different to a lot of other people's journeys, but I mean, everyone kind of gets to, 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 you know, entrepreneurship in different ways. So that, uh, that's, that's brilliant to hear. And of course it's been, it's been a long sort of career since then, you know, um, in, in the 23 years that you've been at Harvard business school, you've helped, uh, 30, no, you've helped the 13 that you helped reach unicorn status, but overall you helped, uh, over a thousand, 1,300, uh, of like of them secured VC investment, and so yeah, it's been been pretty crazy. Like within those those twenty three years, and I, I really want to get to get to know how crucial would you say innovation and entrepreneurship is for you know economic recovery, you know, coming out of COVID, and and yeah, just economic recovery in general. Oh, um, powerful driver of economic growth, and and I think we're already seeing a lot of it coming out of the pandemic. You know, it's um, um, even after the Great Recession of 2009, um, what we saw coming out of business school was students who uh, the regular jobs weren't there. So they spent a lot of time working on a startup idea. Uh, Venture capitalists weren't funding as much. So um, only the best ideas got backed and there were fewer startups around. So if you managed to launch in 2009 or 2010, um, you you had um, a better odds of success. And so some of our um, really most successful uh, startups out of Harvard Business School came from that vintage. I think exactly the same thing is going to happen post-pandemic. And, and I think it's going to be fueled um, by um, two other factors. So same dynamic, um, but, but um, what we've got, I mean, the Great Recession didn't really change the way we work or live. But this pandemic um, will have fundamental changes uh, on uh, 
on how we work. So we'll need tools for collaboration. Um, we, um, we order food online now. We stream video online now. So all of those entrepre entrepreneurial opportunities. Plus, so that's the demand side. The supply side is amazing because now um, we sort of proved you can be anywhere on the planet and, and be part of a startup. You don't have to be in London or Berlin or, or, or New York or San Francisco. And, and I think that's going to open up the world of entrepreneurship to um, to a whole new new set of founders. Um, so it'll be exciting times, I think. And, and and of course, the economy will 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 get solutions to society's problems and we'll get jobs, which is important. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I'd love to kind of dig dig a bit deeper further on the podcast about sort of the ones, you know, what the what the sort of secret formula is for the for those startups that that succeed, you know, reach the VC investment or re even like unicorn status that you've helped. And so in, in your book, The Failsafe Startup, you, you do reveal sort of, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call it a formula. Or, I mean, I guess you could, but, you know, findings of why 90%, or I don't know what the figure is, but I think it is 90% of startups fail. And I think it'd be good to know, kind of get your point of view about like why that happens. Yeah. Um, so the the ninety percent number gets used a lot. It's it's a good number. It's sort of it depends. Like professors are allowed to mince words and and worry about definitions. So it depends how you define a startup, which is actually not as easy as it sounds, right? You do have to be working full time for it to be a startup, uh, and it depends how you define failure, uh, which also isn't completely obvious. Does it have to be a shutdown, um, bankruptcy? Um, you know, my definition in the book of failure is investors uh, did not and never will make money, which is one definition. Um, it doesn't take the founders goals into account. It takes the investors goals. So yeah, somewhere between 50 and 90 percent and um, um, early stage startups sort of in the first few years, um, I, I do see some recurring patterns. And um, one of them that I, I hope the listeners, if they're entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs will watch out for, I call the false start. This is like in track and field or swimming when the athlete uh, literally jumps the gun to try to get an edge and um, and is penalized in some way. Um, and in this case, the entrepreneur, so eager to build and sell the product, um, gets going um, on engineering as fast as possible, launches the, the product, and they've skipped. This is the false start. They've skipped a bunch of upfront research that they should have done before they started the design and engineering work. And, and we're not talking about months and months of work. It's weeks of work um, interviewing potential customers to make sure you found an unmet customer need and then generating. There's always several ways to solve a problem. And um, uh, too many entrepreneurs have sort of burning bright the vision for here's my problem. Here's my solution. Uh, I'm going to pursue that pair. And they launch the business and the odds that it's going to hit the mark um, are low if you've, if you've skipped that upfront research. You can pivot away from the flawed solution, um, but it usually takes, pick a number, four months to build it, launch it, and see if it's working before you want to try the pivot. And if you've only raised a year's worth of capital or you have your bootstrapping and that's how much money you've got in the bank to survive, you know, to waste four out of 12 months on a flawed solution when if you just spent four weeks upfront doing better research, that's a bad trade-off. But, but so much of the identity of an entrepreneur is the bias for action. Let's get going. Um, just do it. Um, and, um, and it's very tempting to, to dive in. Yeah, for sure. I think that stage is, is like really, really important. I think like when I've interviewed young founders, it's, it's a very easy mistake to make for sure, because 
you kind of get bewildered by the actual solution you're building and forget about, you know, product market fit and how important it is to actually speak to your customers and all that stuff. So yeah, I I completely agree. And it it goes a step further. So many of the MBAs that I, that I coach and and teach um, are not technical. They, They actually can't build the product. Um, but they're good at networking and they hear, of course, that a great product is crucial to an entrepreneur's success and, and they're good at networking. So they go off and find a technical co-founder or a vice president of engineering, or they take the money they've got on hand and, and, and will, um, outsource an engineering team. And once you bring those expensive engineers on board, what are you going to do with them? You're going to keep them busy. Um, you keep them busy by having them build a product. So even non-technical, technical founders jump in too fast because they love to build. That's just how they're wired up. And non-technical founders uh, jump in too fast because uh, they think you need product. Um, and that's what entrepreneurs yeah. do. Yeah, it's actually quite rare. Like if you look at the market and of course, like you can agree or disagree with me, but like when you look at the market and product is very much like one element of it. And there's only a few startups that have actually grown massively from product quality alone. And the, uh, the critical thing that I see there is is word of mouth. If if their growth depends very heavily on word of mouth, then they can do product-led growth. And something that I always cite in my mind is Shazam and how well they did. Massively word of mouth driven. Like if you ask anyone, where did you download Shazam? Oh, my friend, my friend showed it to me. It was cool. They they concentrate very much on product-led growth, whereas other startups like that, finding that is very rare though. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Um, a lot of entrepreneurs um, are product obsessed and, and it's not a bad thing to be, but you can focus on product to the exclusion of distribution, sales and marketing. And, um, and um, if, if you don't have all of your sales coming from word of mouth and you ignore um, the, the go-to-market strategy, um, that's, that's, a, uh, that's trouble and, that, and that's a failure pattern. The, the, you know, the, the word of mouth actually, actually points to another failure pattern for early stage startups. I, I call it the false positive. And so we're all familiar with COVID testing, false negatives and false positives. Entrepreneurs are subject to them too. Um, a false negative can be tragic if you get a signal that your startup is a bad idea and you throw in the towel you give up um and and then two years later read that um, somebody just did an ipo with that idea you had um that you gave up on that's sad um so that's the false negative the false positive is you you actually think it's better than it is and you you um, take you build a team you raise money you spend a lot of time on on a flawed idea and um, entrepreneurs are particularly vulnerable to the false positive because there's often a group of enthusiastic early adopters that love what you're doing. They're foaming at the mouth with enthusiasm. They've been waiting for just this thing and they will spread word of mouth. And um, the entrepreneur will often assume they've got a fantastic solution and that this is just going to keep growing forever. But there are only so many early adopters out there. And if your product isn't suited for the mainstream customers and and your viability depends on the mainstream, you can be in trouble. You can be in particular trouble if the needs of the early adopters are different than the needs of the mainstream customers. And, and that's often the case, right? The early adopters are often more sophisticated power users. Um, and if you engineer a product that satisfies them, it may be over-engineered and confusing for the mainstream. So a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs fall victim to the false positive. They expand in the wrong direction. They expand prematurely. That's really interesting. And I think what, uh, when you were talking there, it'd be really great to get your views because has your finding, have your findings and like your views on these things like make sense to me massively, but have they received some sort of like 
backlash or like how have they been received in say Silicon Valley for instance because I know uh, I don't know because like the narratives might be different there yeah it might be too early to know but one of the one of the themes that won't sit well everywhere is the um, is the role of venture capital in entrepreneurial failure um, you, you know um, we, we, we it's it's easy to assume that the factors that lead to entrepreneurial success if you're if you're asking what leads to failure it's just the photo negative right you know if you fail to do the things that make you successful you you, you, you will you will fail um, and um, uh, there's one important case where that's not true. So you obviously have to grow to succeed as, as an, not every entrepreneur needs to grow, but many entrepreneurs want to build a, a world changing product and, and that requires some growth. Um, but that very growth can get an entrepreneur into trouble. Um, if the growth isn't profitable, if, if the customers you're acquiring, if the lifetime value of those customers uh, doesn't justify the, the um, marketing investment you've made to acquire them, that's a problem. Um, and then off, often uh, rapid growth will put strain on operations. It's difficult to hire employees. It's difficult to train employees. When you're a, a, a startup with no systems in place initially for budgeting, for controlling your inventory, for managing customer service, all of that has to be put in place. And the faster you grow, the faster those systems have to be put in place and the faster they'll be outdated. So, um, so growth can really cause problems. And of course, um, venture capitalists are looking for growth. Their business model hinges on on basically um, earning a ten or twenty times, or you know, in a, in a wonderful world, a hundred times return on the initial investment. And they know that that's only going to happen with a very small fraction of the companies in their portfolio. But they need every company in the po portfolio to have that potential. And and the way that happens is the VC will push the entrepreneur to grow. They'll push for hyper growth and to take the kinds of risks that that can, if they're successful, uh, result in that hyper growth. But not every business, not every entrepreneur is suited for that pace of growth or the, or that level of risk. And 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 I found that a lot of entrepreneurs, I think most of the entrepreneurs I talked to who failed, um, who were pushed hard by the VCs, say they knew in the in, an, in the abstract, what they were getting into, but until they actually lived the experience of, of trying to manage hypergrowth and sort of seeing what can break um, when, when you grow too fast, um, that uh, these entrepreneurs wouldn't seek venture capital again. Um, so, so we'll see how that plays um, when a lot of VCs realize that I'm telling some entrepreneurs to avoid. I think many of them would agree, but um, uh, and there's nothing wrong with their model. You know. No, no, for sure. And I mean, they've, they've grown massively. So there's obviously nothing wrong with them. Um, but from, I guess, the founder's perspective, I guess the narrative that's really been taught within Silicon Valley is very much like prove, prove the idea, prove, you know, product market fit, raise capital basically as, as soon as you can. And just, just go, you know, go for more funding next round and, and just like go, grow from there. Would you say kind of, what would you say to founders? Like when is the correct like time to actually go for investment if, if at any point, because as you say, growth, growth might be dangerous at that point. Yeah. Once you take other people's money, um, a clock has started. And, um, you know, I, I saw this with, um, um, one of the companies, each of the chapters in the book is anchored by a case study and, um, um, a case study of a, of a, um, a pair of founders who, um, created a direct to consumer company that was going to sell apparel, um, women's work clothing. 
and um, they um, graduated from business school, got their consulting jobs, but had the dream of being entrepreneurs. And the, the minute um, you quit your day job, you know, unless you have a spouse um, or a significant other who can fund you, um, or you come from a family um, that, that has those resources, you know, once you make that commitment, you have to go out and raise money just, just to earn a living. And, um, and then the money is, once you raise the money, the money is running out from day one and, and you only have so much runway. So, um, so the more work you can do on the venture um, be, before you, you take that first big uh, commitment of outside investment, the better. In this case, um, it turns out that apparel design and manufacturing um, is incredibly complicated and requires specialized skills. And, and, uh, and these founders had no appreciation for, for just how important domain expertise would be. Um, and so they dove in, they hired um, experts from existing apparel companies. And, uh, but those were big company employees who weren't used to the rhythms, the chaotic rhythms of a startup where basically whatever fire is burning hottest, everybody jumps in to try to put out the fire. These people would um, quite literally sit on their hands and say, I'm the pattern maker. I don't know about fabric sourcing. You know, I don't know how to do quality control. What, what could I possibly do to uh, solve this problem? Yeah, so, um, so they hired for skill and not attitude. And they hired for skill to fill the, the gap that they had in domain expertise. And, and if they'd spent more time to your, to your initial question, if they'd spent more time understanding the business and, and, and what the requirements for success would be before they quit their jobs, they would have been better off. Well, I'm really interested. I mean, you bring up direct consumers, very good example of something that's, that's, that's like grown massively within the past few years. And then the pandemic's kind of made it, made it grow even faster. And so I'm really interested to get your view on like with investment and innovation, how do you kind of com compare that you know, pre-pandemic to post-pandemic, like, has it got more, more or less challenging? Like, how, how has it kind of changed within the last, you know, year, two years? I don't know that I have the right answer to that question. I can, I can um, imagine that there are no more, many more people out there that you could put on your team that actually know how to run a business, a direct-to-consumer mm -hmm. business. And so that makes it easier in a sense, but there's probably more competition. And, and the consumer, um, is, is more um, willing, more primed to, to buy uh, direct. So that makes it easier, um, but there's more competition, which makes it harder. And it's hard to know how those, how those will balance. So to any young founders actually listening, I know hopefully some of my audience comes here and they listen to you. And so what sort of things would you say to them or any aspiring entrepreneurs, it doesn't just have to be like young people, it could be anyone looking to kickstart, you know, in a post pandemic era, like, What's your, what's your advice to them? Well, um, read the book. Um, and uh, <laughs> that, that would be the first thing I would tell them. Um, it, you know, the, the, um, the early stage failure patterns, the false start, the false positive, and some of the other patterns, I, I think, um, uh, can be anticipated and avoided. So that's important. But I think sort of stepping back and, and, and you know, entrepreneurs get a lot of advice. We're, we're giving advice now. Um, there's, there's no end to the advice. And there's actually some conventional wisdom about what makes a great entrepreneur. Um, a great entrepreneur is persistent. A great entrepreneur is focused, you know, sort of uh, trims away the distractions. A great entrepreneur is frugal. Um, a great entrepreneur is scrappy. Um, and all of those things are true. 
um, and it's good advice, but, and this is a big but, um, following the conventional wisdom, that advice blindly can actually get an entrepreneur into trouble. So, um, you know, grow with an exclamation point is the mantra in Silicon Valley for sure. But if you're so eager to grow that you skip the upfront research, you may be vulnerable to the false start. Being frugal um, when resources are limited is important, but in some businesses, um, you need uh, industry experts. You need specialists, functional, functional specialists, and they may be expensive because their specialty is, is, is valuable. And, um, and if you're so frugal that you're constantly passing on getting the right team members in place, your venture may fail. So you know, the advice to a, to a first-time founder is pause, think, um, follow the uh, conventional wisdom if it makes sense. But um, there are, you don't want to, you know, the, the, we tell entrepreneurs to trust their gut, to, to trust their instinct. And um, there's a certain level of decision um, bet the company decision where trusting the gut is actually a bad idea um, because your gut is going to be racked by emotion, by strong emotion. You won't make clear decisions. And, um, and on those, for those decisions, sleep on it, maybe two nights um, and talk to a lot of people and, and, you know, moving fast, which is such an advantage to an entrepreneur. Um, there's some circumstances when they should slow down. Great advice. Yeah, it's kind of different advice as well to what a lot of people say, you know, a lot of people, you know, say, you know, grow fast, big explosions, all of that stuff. And I, it's quite it's quite nice to hear that advice from you. And it makes a lot of sense to me. I think that the characteristics that you pointed out before, you know, perseverance and, and all of those different characteristics that you just outlined in your sort of illustrious time spanning over 20 years teaching and helping to launch all these different startups as a young entrepreneur myself. Have you seen the actual, you know, art of entrepreneurship change and evolve over the years? Like the, the, the characteristics that make a good entrepreneur before, is it the same now? Have things changed? Because, yeah, I'd be really interested to get your view on that. Um, I think, you know, if a Martian came, you know, had a time machine and sort of looked at entrepreneurs in the um, early 90s and today, um, they would probably, and you couldn't um, figure out uh, where, what time you were in by clothing cues, et cetera, you'd probably see far more similarities than differences. Um, the big difference, um, I, 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 with two big differences, I would say, I mean, you can start a business now, um, certainly in the information technology space or e-commerce or mobile, you, you know, a business that in the year 2000 um, would have required $5 million of venture capital to buy a a server that costs three hundred thousand dollars, you know, and and then hire you know another three hundred thousand to hire the outside experts who could program it, you know, all of this can now be fifty dollars worth of AWS billings, um, and um, and so that has changed in very fundamental ways the way we as a community can experiment. So there's a there's a lot more experimentation. Um, I I also think. Um, the um, I, I think the um, community of advice is just much much bigger today than it was. So um, you know every venture capitalist is blogging with good advice out there. Uh, entrepreneurs have lots of places they can go, um, support networks, um, co-working spaces, and and so forth. 
So, so it's easier, and, and some folks will study entrepreneurship in school, but you don't need to. Um, so, so I think it's easier to learn how to be a good entrepreneur and get advice. And then the, the, the third, um, I think, gigantic change in the landscape is the lean startup movement. Um, it's, um, it's everywhere. It sort of started in Silicon Valley in 2008, 2009, but it quickly spread throughout the world. And um, this mindset of, of um, have a hypothesis, an assumption, and a rigorous way to test it, um, sort of applying, if you will, the scientific method to startups, I, I think has been game changing. Um, you know, the, the folks who really follow the lean startup logic, um, I think, are better entrepreneurs than, than what we would have seen 20 years ago. That's really interesting what you just said there. Tom, I think like what I'd love to do for the part of the next sort of three, four, uh, four minutes or so, just to kind of give you a bit of quick fire questions. I've, I've really loved talking with you and I think quick fire questions might be a really good way to wrap it up. And so first, if you hadn't found your love for entrepreneurship, what would you be doing instead? You know, you said you, you found it kind of by accident. Could I say that? Yeah. <laughs> you found it kind of after some time. So yeah, it'd be really interesting. Yeah. What would you be doing oh, instead? God, you think? It'd be, um, a toss-up um, between being a paleontologist, an architect, um, or a uh, psychiatrist. <laughs> very, very different. Yeah, they don't. They're not. They're not related whatsoever. No. <laughs> but, but, but all uh, <laughs> things I thought about it at different points in life. All right. Number two. Which te what technology have you found most useful during the pandemic? Um, Zoom, of course. Uh, you know, a, a lot of educators Classic and students one. hate it. Um, I actually love it. I think it works well. So uh, mm. I can't imagine how we could have gotten through the last 14 months without it. Mind my microphone. <laughs> I know it's not software, but it counts as technology. Yeah. I started my podcast in, in the pandemic, so it's been good. Um, number three, if you could go to the pub with any entrepreneur, pubs are open now in the UK, um, uh, who would you choose? Yeah, I guess it would have to have living or dead. If it were live, if it were living and dead, it would be Steve Jobs. Um, and if it were living only, then Elon Musk. Um, they are um, once in a generation entrepreneurs. You know, to to do it multiple times, Jobs with as you know with all the products that and Pixar. Um, you know, not only the Apple products but also Pixar, and then Musk with SpaceX and Tesla. Um, it's astonishing. So. And he's still coming out with new things. Yeah, so. yeah. and he's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, so it's probably a lot of fun. In, in yeah. The what's a startup you're loving at the moment and why? I know you mentioned Zoom, but yeah, what's a startup you're, you're really following closely? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm fond of my own students and um, uh, the team I'm most proud of is probably Cloudflare. Uh, I don't think your listeners will know the company. It's, it's a public company. It has a 30, $30 them, billion dollar valuation, went public uh, a year and a half ago. Um, it's internet plumbing. Um, it speeds up the internet and makes the internet safer. And um, I, I worked with those founders closely starting when they were students starting in 2009 on the business. And it's just been hmm. remarkable to watch them grow um, as entrepreneurs and grow the company. So um, so it's that, that one's personal. The last one, we've kind of already covered this a little bit, but it'd be good to get sort of a concise answer. Fill in the blank. To be a founder, you must be what? Um, so I can't pick one word because um, it goes back to this issue of conventional wisdom and when to follow it and when to um, break from that herd. So you must be persistently flexible, um, meaning, um, you know, be headstrong, stick, stick to your vision, 
but boy, if the universe is telling you that the vision is off target, you got to be willing to yeah. change. So it's, 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 mm. it's balancing, balancing yeah. flexibly. Yeah. Well, Tom, that was my last uh, quick fire question. It's been such an honor talking with you today. Thank you so much for joining me. How can people stay in touch with you? You know, check out your book, all of that stuff uh, in, in the meantime. The anywhere you buy your books, I think you'll find the book. So, uh, and, and um, I'm sure local bookstores in the UK need support just as they do in the US. So uh, um, get out of the house and go, go to that bookstore and give them some business. Amazon has enough business, um, but Amazon's fantastic <laughs> too. And uh, to, to sort of follow me um, on Twitter, I guess is the best way. Um, it's it's Tizenman. My last name, Eisenman with a T in front, um, is um, is the Twitter handle. Okay, sweet. I'm very much looking forward to finishing the book. I started it uh, when I received it a few days ago, so I'm really looking forward to finishing it. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to it, after, especially after the conversation we had today. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Uh, thank you for hosting. My pleasure. If anyone wants to check my podcast out, it's called The Millennial Entrepreneur. Again, we follow the journeys of young entrepreneurs. So yeah, I'm hosting that one regularly. Uh, episode number 55, I think now. It's been going for a while. Um, but yeah, hopefully I'll be on the Elevating Founders podcast a bit more in the future. So yeah, thank you so much again, Tom, for joining me. And I'm sure I'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Thanks, That's it for this week's episode of Elevating Founders. If you have any questions or comments, head over to our social channels linked in the show notes to join the conversation or email us at elevatingfounders@informa.com. If you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate it if you could rate and subscribe to our podcast. See you next time.